This morning, I'm doing a message out of Hebrews chapter 12, so if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, Bible app, um, and if you don't have one, there's actually uh, some in the seat that's around you, and uh, we want to look at this idea of discipleship and discipline, discipleship and discipline. You know, whenever I'm not going through a series, or I guess even when, when I am teaching through a series, uh, sometimes... Uh, people wonder, well, how do you pick? I mean, how do, there's the whole Bible. How do you pick what it is that you're going to, uh, going to talk about? And, and uh, you know, I guess there's really two things that come to mind. One is that uh, part of what I want to do continually, and, and this is on an ongoing basis, is remind us and encourage us that in Jesus Christ we have the gospel. Gospel is just good news, that we have... Good news that we live our lives by, that we get to experience. Good news that we get to proclaim. And so with, there are times, and especially when I mentioned the, the shooting that had took, taken place in El Paso, uh, we look around us and it can just get overwhelming to our, our soul. We can just feel so deep and heavy. And, and, it's, and it's okay to feel the heaviness and the sadness of of the, the world around us. We, sh- we should be affected by it. We should feel that. But at the same time, we're encouraged to not lose hope, right? That's, that's why we look at the gospel. And so part of my role is continually encouraging us to, encourage us to look at Christ, look at the hope we have in Christ, look at what Jesus is doing and how he's overcome the evil one and, and just remind us to to not get overwhelmed by the world in which we live, but to find hope in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's one, one thing that I am always looking at is how, how much have I reminded us lately to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith? Have I encouraged us to, to find joy in the gospel, joy in the life that he brings to us? And, and so I, I want to make sure that I continually do that. The other thing that I'm reminded when I'm thinking about what type of message you should put together is what's happening in the culture around us. Uh, so as a, as a pastor shepherd that I, I look out for our congregation and things that could come into the congregation and, and ways that the culture can influence and press against our discipleship in Christ. And so that's the other part of what I do is I look at how, how can I encourage us or prepare us for uh, standing firm in Christ in a culture that wants to influence, uh, influence us so greatly. And, and so this morning in Hebrews 12, it really kind of focuses in on that. The author of Hebrews writes about discipline, this idea of how we are shaped and, and how we're to embrace discipline. Now, we don't typically like discipline. Even the word discipline, we, we kind of, you know, pull back from that. That, you know, who, who really likes discipline? But I, we're going to see in just a moment how it's so essential, how it's such an important part of our actual discipleship. That those words, how closely not only they are written, discipleship and discipline, but how much they go hand in hand to help shape us and form our life. And so let's pray as we come to Hebrews 12 and, and just allow God to truly just shape our hearts and minds as we turn to His Word. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, you use the things of the, the world, you use the things that we experience to shape our lives. And so now, Lord, help us in reading your word uh, 
again, it's a constant prayer that we have to not be defensive, to not put our guard up, but to be open to you, to be receptive from you. For Holy Spirit, allow you to speak to us, um, to be sober-minded, to be realistic about who we are and where we're at in our faith and our walk with you, but also not to be overwhelmed and to be downtrodden, but to see the hope we have because you're still at work within us. You haven't given up on us, so we certainly shouldn't give up on ourselves. And so, Lord, allow your word, and we say we're committed to allowing your word to work in us and through us. Amen. Now, Hebrews 12, and I'm going to read through verses 4 through 16. Hebrews 12 comes on, um, I was just about to make one of those duh statements. Hebrews 12 comes after Hebrews 11. (laughs) Is that an amazing insight or what? That's the type of stuff that keeps you coming back to New Horizons. Hebrews 11, the author identifies what we sometimes in, in church will call the hall of faith. He lists all of these individuals who throughout Scripture are elevated to this. If you were to have a hall of fame, in fact, this uh, yesterday, for those of you who follow sports, yesterday was the foot, pro football hall of fame inductees. And so they created these, uh, they cast these probably bronze busts of these players and they get enshrined and, and you know, people applaud them. They give them speeches and, you know, these were the best of the best of the players in, in the NFL arena. Well, if we were to look at Hebrews 11, this is the hall of fame of faith. And so these, these men and women who are listed demonstrated their life in, in God. They, many of them from the Old Testament, in fact, all of them from the Old Testament as they went through except for Christ himself, they list up as the, the ultimate example. And so as you go through uh, the Hebrews 11, you see this, this hall of faith. And it's just a, a, one example after another of people who trusted God but the thing that earmarks or, or, or uh, is marked on most noticeably on their life is that they trusted God through difficulties. That's what comes up over and over. It's not this person had great faith and nothing ever happened in their life. <laughs> it comes up over and over in Hebrews 11 that these men and women had great faith in the midst of the most trying and difficult of circumstances. And so then we transition to Hebrews chapter 12, where it specifically identifies Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, who is the perfect, the most perfect example of faith in the midst of death, even death on the cross. The most perfect example of going through suffering and persecution and hardship, and yet persevering in the will of the Father. And so we join Hebrews 12, 4 through 16, where the author is saying, now, here's your struggle. Let me point out something about yours and my struggle as he continues to write on. So let me read, and it's up on the screen here, beginning verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary Weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment all discipline For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so we'll pause there even though the chapter goes on. I want to just spend our time this morning focused in on those particular verses and and what uh, what we're instructed to pay attention to as it relates to discipline. So, the first thing I see about discipline is that it comes with God's approval. And we struggle with this. I struggle with this. Now, one thing that you'll hear from uh, me talk about in relationship to uh, discipline or hardship is that we don't believe, and so this is where you hear different teachings within the body of Christ, and and I'm not saying I am all right. I'm not saying everybody else is all wrong. I'm saying this is the approach from which I teach hardship and, and, and difficulties that we face in life. I don't believe that God is the source of sickness and pain, and then He sets it upon His children to teach them a lesson. Uh, I don't believe that's the nature of God. So if I think about myself, and sometimes this helps me frame my relationship to my Heavenly Father. If I think about myself as a father, I would never, if I had the power, I'd never put sickness on a child, on one of my kids, to just to teach them a lesson. However, when sickness comes, I use it to then help them understand how to move forward to get better. If they're going through a difficulty, I don't accentuate it, or I don't put that difficulty on them and say, let's see what they learn from this. What I recognize as a parent that my children will have difficulty in this life. It exists. I don't have to put it upon them. It just exists. And so what I need to do is train them up or teach them what do they do with the difficulties and the pains that they experience. So when I frame this type of message, I look at my heavenly father in the same way. The, the source of pain and sickness and and uh, hardships, they exist because of what you and I have done, what has happened before us. Sin exists in the world, not because God introduced it, but because mankind introduced sin and brokenness and sin into the world. And so it exists without God putting it on us. It exists because it comes from our hands. It exists because it is here by our own actions. And yet, as a wise, loving father God doesn't just remove it all and put us in this bubble, but He allows it. He makes space for it to enter into our life so that we can learn and grow from it. So that He doesn't withhold it all from from our experience so that we can be shaped by it. And that's exactly what I do as a parent. 
as my child grows, I don't put them in a bubble and, and say, I don't want you to ever experience anything bad. I know that's not realistic. I say, this is what the world is like. And so you're going to have to learn to grow in this and learn in this environment. And so how much more than a loving heavenly father says, I love you and I haven't, I'm not at this point removing sin and sickness from the world that comes in time in his rule and reign. But in the meantime, he's going to allow it to enter into our lives in different ways. And he's going to encourage us and fill us with his Holy Spirit to help us be shaped by it so that we can know him more closely. So it's in that context that I'm presenting this message. So please, please, please don't hear me say that God gave you cancer or God gave you this infirmity in your body. God didn't give it to you. He did allow it to come into your life. If he's sovereign, then he has to be sovereign. We can't say, well, he had nothing to do at all. No. Then we find in Scripture where it says God allowed for this to happen. In fact, in Hebrews 11, you go back and look at all of the things they went through. Did they go through that just because God was asleep or he wasn't God at the time? No, they went through it because it existed in the world and God allowed it to come upon them. And in that, their faith, their faith grew. So we never accuse God of being the one being guilty of bringing sickness and pain and suffering upon us. But we do recognize that God is allowing it into our lives for a greater purpose than just us feeling harmed or hurt by it. So, as I mentioned, Hebrews 11, we see the hall of faith, this list of one spiritual grade after another, and God is recognized for being the one who had that discipline in their life, allowed that discipline to come. So hardship comes to us as a way to discipline or develop our faith in Jesus Christ. I firmly believe that. And I think there's scriptures, as you go throughout the scriptures, you can see how that's true. Hardship comes to us as a way to discipline, or maybe another word for that is develop our faith in Jesus Christ. So how, how does this happen? Well, one thing that happens, according to Hebrews 12, is it affirms our role as sons and daughters. When we experience discipline in our life, when God allows a hardship to come into our lives, it affirms that he recognizes us as legitimate sons and daughters, that we're to be disciplined by it. And, and we, would, we would tend to say, listen, I, I, could use without the dis- I could go without the discipline. <laughs> I'd much rather my life just kind of coast, coast along. We say that, in thinking that would be a better life is to just have, a easy, have it easy, have God put this bubble around every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ, and they could just walk through this bubble of safety and security and no pain. But do you know what that produces? Bratty kids. <laughs> and it doesn't matter the age, it just produces a bratty kid. It also, what it does is it produces an insecurity. Now, this seems counterintuitive, but when you receive discipline, you actually know that you're loved. I, I can tell you this just from my, my own upbringing. My parents, my mom and stepdad, who I grew up with, they loved me. I know this without a, a doubt. They loved me. They loved me. But do you know what? They created in me, because they were very permissive parents. I think I've shared that before. 
they, I had no curfew. I could stay out as late as I wanted. Uh, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted, when I wanted. Uh, they didn't really put boundaries around me. The main thing is they wanted me to make sure that I went to school uh, so that I could graduate at some point. Um, but there, there just wasn't a lot of discipline around my life. My mom was, oh boy, my mom has passed away, but if I could tell her I was sorry, I would tell her I was sorry a hundred times over for the way that I would just go in my room. Here's what laundry day looked like. Just a huge pile of clothes that I hadn't taken to the laundry over the whole week, and it just mounded up, and then I'd just dump them down there, and magically, they would end up in my room folded and put on hangers and all done. And I just did, and I never thanked her for it. I just, you know, piled it on, right? No discipline whatsoever on my behalf. It was just kind of taken care of. You know what happened over years, by the time I, right around the time I was coming to Christ, Jesus used all of this to help shape my understanding of how he works in my life. But I remember having friends who just say, you're so lucky. You just, you don't have to answer to anybody. You get to stay out as long as you want. So here I am my sophomore year in high school and just doing all kinds of terrible stuff. And, and uh, my friends were like, man, you're so lucky. You get to do this and that. And your parents don't even care, care about it. Do you know what started to go through my mind? Why don't they care about me enough to put anything around my life? Don't, don't they care about where my life goes? All the other kids, a lot of my other friends had boundaries. Their parents wanted them back at a certain time. I started thinking, do my parents not care when I get home? This lack of boundaries, instead of creating the sense of they love me so much, they don't want to put any hindrances or any type of guidelines in my life, it started to actually flip. And it created me this sense of insecurity that I don't, if, if somebody's not attentive to me, maybe they really don't care about me as much. Maybe they don't care about me enough to even care about the direction my life takes. And again, I, I say that knowing full well that my parents loved me. They, they took a, a parenting model that they just, it seemed right to them. But I, I can tell you if, if you parent without boundaries, or if you decide, if you think God is, it'd be better if he just put, didn't put any discipleship or any discipline in your life, that would be better. You're missing it. Because all that it will communicate to you is that God really doesn't care about you at all. You just do whatever you want, and he'll just forgive it, and he'll, he'll just look past it. He just won't even care what you do with your life. No, no, no. You have a heavenly Father who loves you, and he sees the course of your life and he allows discipline to come in the shape of hardship and, and difficulties at times so that you would ask the question not, does God not care about me because this hardship is coming into my life? But instead, my Father cares about me enough to allow my life to be shaped into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's one thing that Discipline does. It affirms us, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says. It affirms us as sons and daughters. If you're not disciplined, you have to wonder if your father even would care about you. But he says, because you're legitimate sons and daughters in Jesus Christ, he cares enough for you to experience discipline. The other thing is it puts on display how our faith in Christ has developed. And by that, I just mean that unless you go through some form of discipline or hardship, how do you know what you really have in terms of your faith? Let me, let me put it this way. How do you know if you can lift 50 pounds? 
you lift 50 pounds. <laughs> you, you, don't, you know, you don't talk about lifting 50 pounds, and that's how you know you can lift 50 pounds. You don't picture yourself lifting 50 pounds, or if you have the ability, Photoshop yourself lifting 50 pounds. <laughs> you, don't talk, you, don't, you don't go to the gym and watch people lift that amount of weight. You get to get in and you lift 50 pounds or you don't. And that's what tells you what you really have. Do I have the strength to lift this? Well, the only way you know is to actually do it. How do you know what you have in your faith? By the challenging or the disciplining of your life. To go through a hardship or a difficulty and say, what's showing up in my life? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it something much different? What's showing up through my life when I go through a difficulty? How do you know what you have? Because you go through a challenging situation and it shows forth whether the fruit of your life in Christ is there or whether you turn to your own self-satisfaction and your own self-dependence in those times. Now, we can hear that and say, okay, now I just feel guilty because I didn't pass the test. You know what? You won't ever pass the test 100% until you are like Jesus face to face, right? That's the whole reason. That's, I say the whole reason. That's part of the reason God has you on this earth right now is you can disciple and become more in the image of Jesus Christ. And so when we go through those tests or hardships, it's so that you can see something about your discipleship in Christ that is both encouraging but hopefully also refining that you see something that needs to be challenged or, or changed. Are you facing a hardship right now? What are you seeing in yourself? You think about the way that you're facing it. How are you doing? What's your attitude? How do you treat others? Are you giving yourself to the freedom to sin against God and others because, oh, I'm just going through a hard time. I'm giving myself a pass right now. Or instead, do you say, I'm going to come through this stronger than I ever have before. It's difficult. I'm going through some challenges. But I'm not going to give myself a pass on this difficulty. I'm going to use it to disciple or discipline myself more to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so that's the other purpose of discipline is that it's supposed to show you what you have. It's supposed to show me what's, what's actually there. What have I developed in, in my life? Let me give you a third thing that being disciplined does. It motivates us to partner with God in this work of discipline to grow into maturity. So now, using the same example of a child and a parent, when we are younger, when you're just a, a little infant, your parent does everything for you, Right? Changes your, your pants and, you know, your poopy pants and feeds you, you know, scoops up the food and feeds it to you, you know. So, change keeps us away from dangers. Don't touch that. That's hot. And, you know, puts up guards. I remember we had a table that we had to really watch the kids because it had sharp edges. And, and so, we had to teach them, you know, stay away from that or be careful when you're walking around that. So, the older we got, the more of that responsibility it transferred to the kids, right? They had to learn the lesson, that's hot when the burner's on. I didn't have to stand over them the whole time and say, don't, don't touch that, it's, it's hot. They had, to, they had to learn that on their own. How odd or unsightly it is when somebody who's mentally and physically capable 
as a 15-year-old has mom at the table, open your mouth, who comes to choo-choo? It's not just uncomfortable for those around them. How many of you 15, 16-year-olds want mom, you know, who comes to choo-choo? Open your mouth, right? It's, 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 it's just out of place. It's out of place. Uh-oh, did you make a stinky? Uh-huh. Right? We just, the reason it's so funny is because it's uncomfortable and odd to think of somebody who's grown needing that type of guidance and, and help about their life. But here, here's the serious part. It's equally unsightly and odd when a 15-year-old Christian acts like a two-year-old needing to be spoon-fed. It's uncomfortable when somebody who's been walking with Christ for 20 years old is making messes all over the place and needs people to follow after him to clean up after them. Whew, right? So that's where discipline comes in. That's where we, if we fail to recognize the hardships and challenges in our life, not as God leaving us and, and just forsaking us and not caring about us, but we see the discipline of God in that of here's an opportunity for you to grow. Here's an opportunity for you to see what's in your heart and in your life and take a step forward. Now, am I saying you're going to get it? Am I going to get it all perfect and right? No. I'm not, I'm not saying that just because we, we don't handle difficulties in perfection, we, we understand that's, that's where grace and mercy comes in. But we also understand that it's a, a mercy of God that he shows us where we're at. So that instead of blaming others or blaming God or just turning a blind eye to it and saying, I'm mad at God, we can say, Lord, I want to be more like you. Help me. Next time I have this type of opportunity, help me to go deeper with you. Unfortunately, often in the church, it's, it's not just those of us who have been discipled. Unfortunately, it's Part of what's been in the church, you have the equivalent of helicopter parents that have allowed people to grow up in the church but not mature, to get older in their faith with Christ but not mature in their faith in Christ. There's a lot of don't do that or don't do that or covering up over other messes instead of speaking what we would say truth and love, not judgment, not accusation, but just simply say, listen, that's an area where you can grow in your life. You can disciple and be more like Jesus in your life. We can and we should partner in the discipleship or the, the forming of our faith so that it takes the shape of, <clears throat> shape of the image of Christ. There's another scripture. Uh, let me go back to Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So the encouragement is we're supposed to strengthen those spots that show up as weak. It's not saying you shouldn't have a weakness. It's saying that the discipline or the difficulties are going to reveal weak places in your life, in your walk with Christ. And so what we're to do is to then look at those and go, let me strengthen that area. Let me find out how I can grow deeper in Christ and strengthen that area of my life. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27, that's on the screen as well, says it in a similar way. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth saying, listen, part of that discipline comes with my body, right? The way that I the way that I exert myself, the way that I express myself, the way that I find satisfaction in this life. So when I go through a difficult time, he says, I don't just kind of let my body dictate its appetites and desires. I discipline it. I yield, make it yield to the Word of God, yield to the Spirit of God, so that I can not be disqualified for the prize in Christ, that I'll be pressing on towards the finish line in Jesus Christ. When lived in uh, Kansas City, our backyard, we had a really fun backyard that backed up to a, a little runoff creek. And uh, for the most part, it was, you know, just a, uh, maybe about six feet wide at, at some places when we first moved there. Uh, but every once in a while, in Kansas City, we had some really huge thunderstorms and rains that would come down just all at once. It would just, you know, flood. And we've had that recently here, right? So it just overwhelms the system in a way that there's so much water that comes all at once. Well, before they did, they, they did some construction, but before they did that, what would happen is this water would come out from a, underneath this uh, main road that was by our house, and our house was this, the third one away from this, this little uh, underpass area. And when the water would come through there, all of a sudden it would just rush up onto the back part of our yard. And so it left a, probably a good 40-foot section of our backyard unusable just because it would get washed out whenever those heavy rains would, would come through. The water would rise up and it would just kind of push everything that was in its pathway. You could go down there afterways, plants, everything were kind of had that, it looked like it had been mown down. It was just uh, all pushed over just because of the runoff. Well, after a few years that we had been there, maybe six or seven years, they did this construction project where they put these large cement blocks all around the bank and they put in kind of a barrier wall. And after that, it changed because they redirected the way the water came in. It hit that barrier wall and then it went down along the banks and then they reinforced the sideline so it wouldn't, it wouldn't wash up, right? Makes sense. So now we had full use of our property. We could go all the way to the back. What did, what did they do? They put discipline around the water to make it go a certain direction so that it followed a flow or a pathway so that then it was no longer destructive, but it was useful. I think that's such a great picture. If you've seen a, a river or a stream without any barriers around it, it just goes wherever it pleases. But when you put some boundaries around it, it flows, it can be redirected in a way, and it makes it powerful still, but in a very focused way. So we talk about this whole idea of what Paul brings up. It's like, I... I beat my body. I, I, I discipline it in a way so that I just, I'm not passionate. I'm not just all over. Do you know that's one of the challenges I see in the church of Jesus Christ and in, in our culture today is that there's, there's Christians who live in such a way that they just follow over this and then they go over here and then they feel this and so they pursue that and, and they lack this sense of I'm centered in Jesus Christ. It means that my attention is on Him and what He's doing. I'm focused on the Holy Spirit. And does, 
Does that mean I don't have emotions? No, no, it means you have emotions and you, you feel it. It's okay to feel it. But those don't pull you around to where you should go. When you feel disappointed with God, it doesn't mean I'm done with you, God, because you don't care about me. It means, God, let me see you in the midst of this hardship. What is it that you want to do in me and through me in this? So discipline is like those river barriers that focus the, the life of Christ in us to move us onward and upward towards our, our life in Christ. Instead of just having our life be all over the board, it gives us focus in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we come to the communion table, and this is such a, a good example of one of the things that we do as a church family. Once a month we do it all together, and it's such a good example of how we identify with Jesus Christ. And, and let me finish with this part by going back to Hebrews 12, where it identifies that Jesus is the author, means he's the one, as the book of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and so he's the author of our faith, but he's also the finisher. So he's seen it through all the way into perfection. He's the one that we see how he's, how he's both lived it and it's written up for us, but he's also then lived it out as an example for us. So when we receive communion, we're, we're saying, I'm identifying with the life of Christ. In other words, that which he submitted himself to, I want to submit to. You hear the words of Jesus echoing throughout his life? I only do the things the Father tells me to do. I and the Father are one. Right? There's so much that <laughs> you think about the capability Jesus, the Son of God, had the ability to do, the things that he could have done. You're talking about the ability to be all over the place, being pulled this way and that way and doing this and that. And yet, he disciplines himself to say, I only do the things the Father leads me to do. And he comes to the point, the greatest point of suffering, none of us can even fathom this suffering that he's experiencing in the garden, preparing for his crucifixion, recognizing that it means not only pain and death physically, but a separation from his Father whom he had perfect communion throughout all of eternity up to that point, living in oneness, and now he's going to be separated from his Father as he takes the sin of the world upon himself. In this deep anguish, he calls out, Father, take this cup from me. It's more than I can bear. We, we want to talk about what we've experienced. It says, wait, 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 Hebrews 12, you haven't yet suffered and struggled against sin to the point of blood shed yet. Your Savior has. You haven't reached that yet. In your struggle, you haven't gotten there. So it's an identification with Him as He struggles with the difficulty of being obedient to the Father to the point of death on the cross. And His final response to that is, Lord, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. 